if you were named the Protestant Pope of FAC for one day, and you could make any changes you wanted around this place, what changes would you make? Now, don't scream out loud. I was going to uh, suggest that we share with the person next to you, but I was afraid we would not get the conversation back, and who knows what it might break out, so we didn't want to go down that road. But I want to share with you some of the things that I have heard since I've been here of what we really need to, to be and what we need to do to be a Christ-honoring church. Uh, when I say your thing, if I say your thing, please, no cheering. No, yeah, that's the one, right? No, don't go down that road. Um, it's something, I, every one of these I have heard, I might have paraphrased a couple, but, but this is... Such. Um, here are some things I've, I've heard. Uh, what this church needs is more life, more celebration, more excitement in the worship service. What this church needs is more silence and meditation and seriousness in the worship service. We need more liturgy. We need freedom from liturgy. We need more songs that speak to us today. We need more songs that spoke to the church in the past. We need it louder. Believe it or not. Yes, we need it softer. Some have said, we need more country, western, gospel stuff. We need more... Sorry, Doug. We need more classical music. We need more organ. We need more guitar. We don't need instruments. The New Testament church didn't have any. We need longer sermons. I like that one. Uh, I think I came up with that one. We need fewer sermons. We need more... Believe it or not, honestly, seriously, we need more offerings, somebody said, huh? I thought, okay, let's throw up, put it on the list. Uh, I've heard some suggest that we don't have any offerings. We just have a box in the foyer and whoever wants to put money in it can do that. Uh, we need to reach the young people. We need to keep the older people. We need more social programs like Feed the Poor. We need more potluck dinners like Feed Our Bodies. We, how about Feeding the Soul? I'm of Kay Arthur, I'm of Bill Hybels, I'm of John Piper, I'm of Andy Stanley. We need robed choir members. We don't need a choir. We need more prayer meetings, men's studies, women's studies, teen studies, days of feasting, days of fasting, more outreach events, more missions events. We need to be the first alliance mall of America church that offers something for everybody. No, multiple somethings for everybody because it's all about options today. And here's one of my favorites. What this church needs to be a Christ-honoring church is... Starbucks coffee. Yeah. Are we going to please everybody here? Uh, I don't know if we'll please anybody. And the goal, of course, is not to please anybody. Have you ever wondered, though, when you ask such questions, what would Jesus say? Probably should take into account his, his opinion. I mean, it is his church, right? So it's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. Uh, he paid a pretty substantial price for it, I understand. He is called the head. We are his body. For we need to be doing what he says. He's our Lord. That means we decrease, he increases. So what might Jesus say in answer to that question? If, if Jesus was to write us a letter, he was to say, Dear FAC, dear church, I've been observing you and evaluating how you do things. And how you run the show here and what you do and what you don't do and, and, and how you do what you, you, you do and, and you're wise as to what you do and don't do. And I've been checking out your heart and I've been checking out your thoughts and I've been watching and I eavesdropping on the private conversations. And I just have some thoughts. Here they are. What would he say? Pretty important question to ask. 
you know, what he does do is he addresses this very subject in Revelations 2 and 3. He writes to seven different churches. And he kind of writes them a long post-it note. Not really a letter, but just a, a long note saying this very thing. I've been observing you. Here's my take. And in those seven churches, we find what Christ's thought is for his church, for us today. You know, you'll be surprised what's on his list. And you'd be surprised what's not on his list as well. And most all the things we listed, you know what? They're not on his list. Um, these mostly are almost all cultural issues. Now, we don't want to say, we want to say they're theological issues, because see, that, that takes away the conversation. This is just the way it is. It's a theological issue. But mostly they're cultural issues. And, and, and important things, and we have to address them. And I, June, June 24th, that Sunday, we've, middle of the series, we've kind of dubbed as a vision Sunday. We're going to talk about even some of those things. But the most important thing is not my list or your list. It's Christless. It's figuring out what he wants us to be and what he doesn't want us to be. I've got this, this, this crazy thought that if we are obsessed with his list, many of those other things will end up taking care of themselves. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I trust you do, if you turn with me to Revelation, just open it up to Revelation. And when you think about doing a study on the book of, of Revelation, even though we're not going through the whole book, you know, you, you can all kinds of things come into your mind, right? Seven-headed beasts and wild monsters and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all these judgment things that are happening and Armageddon and just all kinds of stuff going on and who and when and where is all this stuff going to happen and, and a lot of folk are intrigued by Revelation because it's, it's prophetic yet many folk are confused by Revelation and you get done reading it and your, your answers to your questions have not, not been delivered and you're, you're sh- scratching your head going, what in the world is this all about? And so let me give you just three real quick um, understandings on how to interpret the book of Revelation or why there are some issues in our interpretation. And hopefully these will work while we're going through our study over the next several weeks. And hopefully you can take these when future reading, future understandings of Revelation. Some reasons why we struggle uh, with the book of Revelation. First one I would say is cultural idioms. Um, let me give you an example. If I was to tell you, making up a fictitious story, this didn't happen, but, but I was to tell you, you know, the other day I was on Peach and I was walking through a parking lot and I just got out of a jeweler and I had a bag, you know, from a jeweler and, and this Saddam Hussein looking guy saw me and he saw my bag and he started coming after me and as much as I could, man, I flew like a bat out of 80s, but I'm not, I'm not able to go very quick and this guy was kind of like Speedy Gonzalez anyway and so he cornered me. And I knew he wanted my bag, but I didn't want him to get his grimy paws on this thing. And so I looked and there was an officer, a cop down the road, hanging out with some like high school students talking to him. So I pulled a Tom Brady and I just hurled this Hail Mary and got the, my package right to them. He saw that I, he didn't have the prize anymore and he left and we all lived happily ever after. Now, if I told you that, you might have a general idea of what I just said. But your understanding would be directly dependent on your knowledge of who Saddam Hussein was, who Tom Brady was, who Sweetie Gonzalez was. Your understanding of what I just said is, is going to be dependent on your realizing that Peach is a street of understanding some of the cultural idioms of like uh, what, what a bat out of Hades means, what a Hail Mary is. If you didn't understand any of those things, and I just shared that, 
You'd be scratching your head going, what in the world is this person talking about? Revelation has a lot of Judaistic cultural scriptural idioms. Uh, Revelation refers to the Old Testament, not necessarily quotes it, but refers to it more than any other book in the New Testament. It's all over the place. So, so cultural idioms make us scratch our head sometimes. Sometimes the, the idea of biblical numerology. Now, for us, for example, uh, seven just means one more than six and one less than eight. That's all seven means. Uh, but for the Hebrews, they had lots of associations with numbers. Numbers meant much more than that. There was symbolic significance to each number or to many numbers. Uh, seven, for example, because there were seven days in creation and then you started all over again, seven, seven uh, days. They, they saw seven as a number of perfection, not morally, but, but it, was, it was complete, it was fulfilled, it was mature. That's why in the book of Revelation, you have seven candlesticks and you have seven stars and seven angels and seven eyes and a seven-headed beast and seven trumpet judgments and seven seal judgments and seven bowl judgments and seven years. There's lots of seven. And there's lots, a lot of new numbers that you read. There's a reason why they're there. Uh, the third reason why we struggle a little bit with Revelation is just because it's a different kind of genre. Apocalyptic literature, they call it. When we read poetry, we know it's poetry just by the margins and stuff. We, we might not know exactly what the author means, but we, we can understand there's some symbolism type thing going on there. We understand narrative. We understand allegories. We understand these kind of things. But we don't have a whole lot in our culture today, apocalyptic literature. What is this? Well, it's a version of prophetic literature, uh, often always given actually by an angel that has uh, lots and lots of symbolism involved so that it's getting your mind and heart and imagination involved in it. So it's just a different genre that we, we don't see. So we get confused a little bit. What is this about? Well, well hopefully what we're going to be giving to you next week, if I can remember it, is uh, just some resources. If you're looking to go further in Revelation, because there's a lot of stuff out there that's not real good, but there's some things that are solid, so we'll, we'll make that uh, available to you. But we're going to start in our series next week really on chapters 2 and 3, but there's, of course, a chapter 1 before two. And so we want to really dig into that this morning with the time we have left because it's foundational for our study of chapters two and three. It's foundational for the whole, the whole book, the, the revelation. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you've got your Bibles. Uh, if you don't, use the one in the pew rack in front of you, Revelation chapter one. We're going to dig right in verse one just for some background. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the, te- the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Well, a couple things with this. First of all, you notice that the author of this book is Jesus. It, it, important. Paul wrote Colossians. Peter wrote First Peter. John wrote his gospel, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But here... We find Jesus deciding to get in on, on it as well. Matter of fact, in, in chapters 2 and 3, those letters to the churches, Jesus decides he's going to personally dictate those. And there's a, there's a reason why. That's very significant. Uh, it's, it, Jesus is the author. The intermediary is John. It's the Apostle John. About 60 plus years earlier, John, maybe 17, was called by Jesus to follow him. And he hung out with Jesus. 
And he saw the miracles. And he, he, he sat at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die. He was given jurisdiction over Jesus' mom, Mary. Uh, he saw the resurrected Christ. That was about 60 years ago, though. Here in Revelation, we find him down the, the chapter a little bit that he's, he's been banished to Patmos. It's a penal colony island. It's like Alcatraz. He's in jail because of his testimony. He's the last living apostle, perhaps the very last living person who has seen the resurrected Jesus. Uh, his, his apostle friends have died. His brother James has been killed. The apostle Paul has come on the scene and Nero has taken him out as well. The book of Acts has been done for some time, even though he had a part in it. And he is alone, 80 years old, uh, in jail, banished to this, this island. Now, who's he, who's he writing to? Well, well verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And you find again in verse uh, 11, where he says, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Again, there were more than seven churches in Asia. There were, they don't use eight. They don't use six. Why? Because seven is that number of perfection. And what they're saying is this letter to these seven churches is a letter to all the churches. It encompasses all of us. It encompasses FAC as well. Uh, Ephesus, the first church that's mentioned, is about 45 miles uh, from his island. He served, John served in Ephesus. Matter of fact, he was itinerant in all of these churches. All of these churches, they're the major ones, they're the anchor ones, and they are on the same road. They all have post offices, believe it or not. And John probably would not have written seven different scrolls. He probably wrote, wrote one scroll, uh, but he sent it with a messenger. Probably it was read in Ephesus, and they moved it over to Smyrna. Then they moved it down to Pergamum and up over to Thyatira, and then back down to Sardis and Philadelphia, back to the coast in Laodicea. And probably these guys would copy the scroll as it, as it, as it went around. But the book of Revelation is written to... Uh, these churches, just like Colossians is written to the, the saints at Colossae and Thessalonians written to the guys at Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica. The book of Revelation is written to these seven churches. These, this, these churches would have been second or third generation Christians. Odds are high that nobody there had actually seen Jesus. Odds are high that nobody there was even alive when Jesus was alive. What we know about church history, they have not seen a lot of miracles. So they're kind of like us. They just are going off of what they heard. They heard about this, this gospel, this, this Jesus. And they're committing their life to it. Now, there's one other thing you need to know about this. And this is pretty substantial because at this point in history, Domitian is on the throne for Rome. Uh, Domitian is a bad man. And now, most of the Caesars, or all the Caesars, when they died, they were worshipped as God. But Domitian didn't want to wait till after he died. And so he demanded worship now. And so everybody in the Roman Empire needed to go before a magistrate once a year, throw a little incense into the fire to, to Domitian and pledge their allegiance to him and that he was God and, and he was number one in their life. Well, you could see Christians had a hard time with this. And Domitian took it personally. And so he ushers in, he's ready to usher in here, the most horrific full empire-wide persecution that the church would ever know in, in, in the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the original recipients of this letter, we were told that what's going to happen to them, they're going to be asked to give the, uh, pay the ultimate price. 
Many of them would be crucified. They said the roads coming in and out of Rome were just lined with crosses, with, with Christians. You want to serve a crucified Jesus? Okay. And they would crucify just to remind people who their allegiance ought to be. Uh, they tell us that, that uh, some of the folk would have holes drilled in their head. And while they're alive, they would have hot molten metal poured into their, their head. They would be impaled on sticks and then covered with pitch and light, lit on fire. They would be, of course, thrown to wild animals. That's what we think of when we think of this. This is the worst, worst kind of torture you can imagine. Their families would be subjected to this. And Jesus knows that his church, this is down the road. This is coming. This is already just getting ready to start. And it's ready to hit these guys. And so he says, I have got to step in for my church and give them this revelation, give them this letter. And so you think, okay, he's going to start off. This church is ready to face this. What's he going to say of this first chapter? Is he going to say, you know, John, you've been faithful servant for me. You know, for crying out loud, you're 80 years old. We're talking jailbreak. Let me tell you how we're going to get you out. Or does he talk to the seven churches and say, you know what? I'm going to arrange a coup in Rome and Diocletian's, Domitian is off the throne and we're going, to, we're going to erase this whole thing. Or does he say, you know what? I'm going to mix up the paperwork and you won't have the execution squads coming to your towns. Or even, you know, run. Or even hang in there or something. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He, he comes off almost the entire chapter is a description and a vision of him. You'd say, well, man, is that the best you got? Is that what I mean? I don't know. Is he ego, Jesus an egomaniac here? What is this about? Jesus knows that the number one thing that his church is, is going to need to get through that which hell is throwing at him is a clear vision of him. They have to. Now, it's as if hell is, is pulling all stops. And hell is, is, is emptying its arsenal on the church. The whole church at this point is in the Roman Empire. And it's as if Satan is going to do everything he can, throw every tool he's got at it. And all kinds of things as we get into these churches are coming at him. Not just suffering, but immorality and false teaching and pride and pity. You name an issue that hell has got, these churches have been infected by it. And, and Satan is coming at them with it. And Jesus knows that they're going to survive. It's not going to be because they, they need more discipline. It's not going to be because they're faster. It's not going to be because Satan's going to leave them alone. If they're going to, to, to survive spiritually, it's only going to be because they understand who I am. It's, it's the foundation. So the number one thing, obviously, he wants for us in, in our church is an understanding of who he is. Now, throughout Scripture... We see pictures of this cosmic battle. I mean, there's, you don't have to look hard to find verses, to find a text, to prove this, this idea of Satan's attacks. Satan starts off right in the very beginning, right? He, he, he tempts through Adam and Eve and gets them to, to put the entire creation underneath his domain, brings the curse there. And then at the very end of, of Revelation... We see the battle of Armageddon, again, between Satan and his cohorts in Christ. One final last time. Then everything in between. We find Satan coming after Job, and he wants to sift Peter, and he is given credit for the demise of many of the prophets in the Old Testament. We, we find in the New Testament, I, I believe, through Herod's edict. Remember when, when uh, he realized Jesus was born, and so he goes to send forth, all, have all the babies killed in Bethlehem. I believe that was demonic. And when that didn't work, Satan himself meets Jesus in the desert and tries a different tactic to try to derail Christ. 
And of course, Judas is involved with, with, with Satan when it says that Judas entered, or Satan entered Judas to cause the betrayal. We, we find in Scripture that Satan's called a liar. And how many of us know Christians who've been infected by some sort of false teaching and basically they're useless spiritually? And we, we see Scripture calls uh, Satan a murderer. And throughout the pages of church history, many men, women, and children who claim Christ have been put to death because of their faith. We find Satan being called an accuser of the brethren. How many folk do you know that are just plagued by guilt and therefore they are, they're spiritually useless? He's the tempter. And how many folk do you know or got tied up in some sort of sin or the other, and therefore they are useless spiritually. Listen, our, our lives are in the hands of an almighty, sovereign God. No question about it. If you, Revelation, if you haven't read it, the end of the book, Jesus wins. But you need to know, spiritual warfare is very real. Satan is in this for keeps, and he has given everything he has at it, at you, at me. And Jesus knows what you're dealing with right now. He knows what you're going to deal with, whether it's a frontal attack straight up or whether it's a covert kind of thing coming through the back door. You don't even know, but you have, you have fallen. He knows. And he knows the one thing you've got to have in order to survive spiritually is you need to have a strong, firm vision of, of him. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily understanding this, Jesus, and he died on the cross for me. That's wonderful. That's the start. But has your vision of Christ grown since then? I think this is, is fascinating. Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Chronicles of, of Narnia, if you remember that, the first book, the, the children, they enter into Narnia, they meet Aslan, and they, they love, it's wonderful, and, and then at the end of the book, they're, they're out of, of, of Narnia, they get back in in the second book, and they come across Aslan again, and what? He looks so much bigger to them. And so they ask him, Aslan, have you grown? He says, no, no, child, I have not grown. You have grown. As we grow spiritually, you know, our vision of Christ grows. We see and we behold and we understand more and more and more of who he is. This, this, this revelation that, that Jesus gives John, let's look at it for just a second. And I wish we could tear apart every phrase in this, this chapter. This is such a rich chapter but but verse 12 says then i turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning i saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the the sun shining in full strength we're going to find out this was Jesus i wonder now, john knew jesus he hung out with jesus but he never saw jesus like this before you know, Tom Skinner was a uh, African-American evangelist. I think died in 94. Gang leader in Harlem before he became a Christian. He says when he was a little kid, he went to Sunday school. And he des- describes this picture that he saw of Jesus. I think it's a picture of Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. He says, you know, this guy had long flowing hair like out of a hairdresser. You know, it was all combed perfectly. He wore this, wore this dress and he was gentle and sweet. And, and Skinner says, I don't know who that really was. Uh, but I, I knew he wouldn't last five minutes in my neighborhood. 
But now this picture of Jesus, I think the question isn't, would he last five minutes in the neighborhood, but would the neighborhood last five minutes with him, right? By the way, you need to know, this is side point. Uh, With the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door. I don't think there's a text more demonstrative of the deity of Christ than this text right here. It's incredible. And this is, boy, um, John uh, knew the word of God. And you need to know that every one of these descriptions of Jesus was, was a description of God Almighty Yahweh in the Old Testament. Every one of these. Every one of these names were attributed to God in the Old Testament. But here, they are attributed to Jesus. Uh, John understood he had a vision of Christ. Now, we might say, well, okay, well, listen, I'm interested in in growing in my vision of Christ, but how do I get it? I mean, John, yeah, Jesus came to him with a vision. And if he does that for me, I would love that. That would be great. It would be a little scary, but yeah, that would be cool. Um, When we say that, what we're really saying, if 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 we work it through, is the reason I don't have a full vision or understanding of Jesus, it's not my fault, it's God's fault, because he's never zapped me with the vision. But you need to know how John got this vision of Christ. Because you can have this vision of Christ too. This is how, how, how John got it. Look in verse um, 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice when he saw the vision. Now, the Lord today, obviously, was was Sunday. The the New Testament church began not worshiping anymore on Saturday, but they turned it to Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection. That was the day the New Testament church met. This is interesting to me because John is, is basically alone in his faith on this island. He doesn't have a watch or a calendar, but somehow he knows this is the Lord's day. Eighty years old. And he is still taking account of the Lord's day. On the Lord's day, you set that day aside and you concentrate and you focus on Jesus and you celebrate his resurrection. John, by himself, being in the spirit, he is worshiping, which would have included God's word. It would have included prayer. It would have included probably singing. John is worshiping. And because he's worshiping out of that time, he sees Jesus. He sees the vision. We want the vision but we don't want to put in the time in the worship. But it's interesting that the vision comes out of the time with worship. Now, John was a man who knew God's word and was just filled with it. And again, you might say, well, well, I don't see that in there. Show me. How do you get that? Again, Revelation deals with more inferences to, to the Old Testament than any other book. This first chapter alone, over 30 references or inferences of the Old Testament. I mean, he is, he is talking about different passages in, in Daniel, different passages, several different passages in Isaiah, several in Ezekiel. He's talking about passages in, in Zechariah and in First Kings and in Judges and in Psalms, multiple Psalms. John was so enmeshed with the Word of God, so, so filled with the Word of God that he couldn't speak, he couldn't think without it coming out without it being a part of who he was. And he had been a fisherman, so please don't ever go out on the road and say, well, I'm just not an academic sort. God has given his word for us to know. And John knew it so well that this vision was not a surprise to him. Every one of these things, like I mentioned, was from the Old Testament. 
And, and God wants to give us a vision of who he is. But it's going to be it's going to be in, in conglomeration or, or in, in connection with our understanding of the word of God. The Holy Spirit will put those pieces together, but we've got to put the pieces in. And as we do, I think this is wonderful. Eighty years of age, the pieces start falling together for John and who more of who Jesus is. So let me ask you, what what? What's your plan for being with him, for being in his word? One more thing we point out in verse verse three. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. I just think that's great. You know, the purpose of Revelation, the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to tell us who the Antichrist is or the exact time when Jesus is coming back. It's something Jesus himself said he didn't know. But the purpose of the book of Revelation is to transform us. As we do this study these, these next few weeks, it's my prayer for me, it's my prayer for you, that God will transform us. But you need to know, he won't force that on you. If you don't want it, he's, he's oh, it's all right. But if you want to be transformed and you say, oh God, would you transform me through your word these next few weeks, that's the purpose of the book, to hear it and to do something with it. That's what it's, that's what it's about. He knows we need a vision of him. The vision of him is only going to come through through time alone with him. And you've got to know, John, after 80 years, was not spending five minutes every three days a week in devotions. He was enmeshed in God's word, immersed himself in it, and that came out. Now, we need to know the vision of Christ because, and here's another reason, is because uh, that's what we were created for. Let me, let me point this out. This is, this is great. In verse uh, 16, it says, In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Uh, now, keeping this picture, right? He's got the, the, the white like wool hair, so his hair is, is, is reflecting, it's radiant. He's got, he's got fire eyes. His feet are burnished bronze like in a furnace. They're glowing. I mean, everything about him is emitting light. His face especially, like the sun in all its brilliance. You can't even look at it because it will, it will knock you down. It'll kill you. But scripture lets us know that the face of God is intimacy with God. It's relationship with God. It's why Moses said, Lord, show me your face. And God tells him, you can't see it and live. But remember before the fall in Genesis 1, 2, a little bit in 3, it said that they walked with God in the cool of the garden. What does it mean? It means they saw God's face. And it was wonderful. It was fine. It was, we're talking relationship. Think of the person that, that you love the most, that loves you the most, that knows you the most, the person that you enjoy being with the most. Multiply it by about a million. That's what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. It's, it's knowing his face. But as soon as sin enters in, what happens to Adam and Eve? They become afraid of God. They run from God. They're banished from seeing his face from that point on. You find it in Isaiah, right? When, when he sees uh, God in the temple, he says, Woe is me. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord of hosts. When Peter's in the boat, remember this, they just spent all night fishing, he didn't catch anything. They go out in the morning, they got Jesus in the boat, he says, throw down your nets. They said, oh, okay, they threw out the nets, full of fish. And Peter realizes, who controls the fish? This is God in my boat. 
And so Peter, on his face in the boat, says, Lord, depart from me. I just think that's fascinating. We were created to have a relationship with God, to see his face for that intimacy. But when folk get around it, they're saying, depart from me. When John sees Jesus here, he's falling down on his face like a dead man. In Daniel 10, when Daniel sees a very similar image, he falls down like a dead man. The thing that we're, we're made to know, to be. It's scary to us. And you know, if you've chased after life in one way or the other, the the thing that holds out hope for us is that next thing, that maybe that's what it's going to be. And if we do get it, we realize, no, I guess that wasn't it. It's the face of him. It's knowing him. But that's a very scary thing for us. I think it's... um, like if you if you think you're a brainiac sort of person, right? You think you've done fairly well in school, you, and and so you get to get to college, and you get you you're, you're doing all right academically. You think you are, and you sit down in your your inorganic chemistry class, right? And it's killing you, and it's all you can do to get a C minus. And then there are some folk in that class though who are breezing through the thing like it's lunch hour or something. As you hang out with those guys, you realize that they all got perfect SAT and ACT scores. Now, how smart are you feeling when you're around them? You want to get away from them. You think you're a great athlete. And the only reason why you weren't recruited is because the scouts didn't come to your school. So you walk on to Penn State, you know, and you're just going to walk on and be a part of their team. And, and you get there and you realize that all the guys on the field are four or five inches taller than you. And they got 75 pounds more. And you can throw the ball great for 10 yards. But some of these guys are nailing it at 50 yards with such velocity. What kind of an athlete do you feel like now? Or you're a girl and you feel like, I'm pretty, pretty girl. I think I, that's what people tell me. I believe that. And all of a sudden you end up in a group of girls that look like they're cover models for, for Seventeen or some other trashy magazine. You know, how are you feeling then about your beauty? You know, it's like, man, you want to get away from those people. Can you imagine suddenly we're before God? And we're going, I guess my motivation's not as selfless as I thought it was. My heart's not as pure as I... I, I Led myself to believe. And my knowledge is pretty useless. And uh, every best I've got to offer is filthy rags. I, I, I love this in, in, in 17. John, before God, very, very conscious of, of his sin. Very conscious of that which separates him from God. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and Omega uh, here. That thing that separates you and I, John, you need not worry about it. I'm God Almighty, and I died for you. Remember when I was on the cross, I died for you. So that thing that separates, that thing that you can't see my face through and from, it's gone. It's gone. It's done. I'm alive forevermore. Romans 6 lets us know that that because he's risen from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He said, hey, you know what, John? It's all good. Our relationship, it's all good. This is what we were made for. And let me side point. If you have never committed your life to Christ, you don't. John's not standing before Jesus saying, well, I'm pretty good because of all my stuff. Your stuff is nothing. It's dirty rags. No matter how it looks in comparison to others before God, it's, it's nothing. 
but it's in surrendering our life to him who died on the cross for us. He died. He's God Almighty. He died in our stead. You can surrender your life to him even now. Uh, There's a little card in the rack in front of you. Yes card. If you check that, if you bring it to the connection table, you're still thinking about it, they'll get you kind of an intro kit where what your next step is. Um, One more thing let me point out, and then we'll we'll be done. And again, I wish we could spend a lot more time on this. But as we know his person, as we know his uh, person for who we were created to know, we also need to know his person in its presence. Verse uh, 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, etc. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is, this is fascinating to me because Jesus is painting this picture for John of who he is. And, and all the picture that Jesus has is right in the midst of of his church. You will not find Jesus painting a picture of himself separate from his church. He's interceding for us now. He loves his church. It's all about his church and his people. He's in their midst now. He knows what they're dealing with. He knows what they're going to deal with. That's why he, he's writing. That's who he's about for FAC. That's why it's important for us. Because we look back sometime and say, you know what? There were some golden eras in our history. Maybe just a few years back. And if you look at the history of this church, there were multiple golden arrows throughout, throughout, throughout the span of this church. We say, well, he's, he's gone though now. He's left. He may remove our candlestick, but he'll never remove his presence. In these seven churches we're going to be looking at, all kinds of stuff going on in them. Some of them he has nothing good to say about, but he's just as much there as anywhere else. Listen, as, as an individual, whatever you're dealing with, good, bad, struggle, he, you need to know he's in the midst. He's closer than you know. He's very aware of what it is you're struggling with, you're wrestling with. He's very aware of those times when no one else knows, but you fight in your mind to honor him. He knows those things too. He's very aware of what you're dealing with. And the greatest thing with, with the vision here is he's going to bring everything. He wants to bring all of who God is to bear on those things. What, what holds him back is just our understanding. We, our God is too small sometimes. But as we spend time before him in worship, in his word, listening, our image, our understanding of him will, will, will grow. We're going to be venturing into this study over the next multiple weeks. And I know we started off, what do you want in a church? The real question we want to ask is, what does Jesus want in the church? What does Jesus want in me? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we need to be doing what we need to be doing to make sure the foundation is set in our heart today, this week, and on if we're going to survive the onslaught that hell is throwing at us even now. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord, again, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my God, for being so incredibly great beyond anything we can imagine. We think we know you. We think we understand. And your desire is to teach us and grow us and make us more of the the people you want us to be. But through a vision and understanding of who you are, 
And so I would ask, even this, this week, Lord, would you remind us of your word? Would you remind us of that which is important? I know we prayed it for the graduates earlier, but for us, Lord, would you help us to keep the main thing the main thing, to seek you with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen.